0: Okay, Boomer. This time on Poll Hub, our three Boomer hosts are talking with Gen X, Washington Post columnist, Philip Bump, about his new book, which is all about, let me check my notes here, uh, Boomers! What hath the baby boom generation wrought in America? Our culture, our economy, our way of life? We have plenty of questions for this youngster. Okay, Boomer. And we have saved the sweetest bit for last. Lee's fun fact is so tasty, I can't wait. but I'll have to, so will you. Stick around, let's get to it. And hi everybody, welcome to Poll Hub, I'm J.D. Dapper.
1: I'm Barbara Carvalho.
0: And I am Lee Marikoff. And the one thing, well, maybe not the only thing, but one of the things we have in common is that we are all baby boomers, for better or for worse. We're different ends of the baby boom generation, but we're all boomers. And if there's one thing about the boomer generation, I think, uh, at least in my lifetime as a boomer, is we've gotten a whole lot of attention and given ourselves a whole lot of attention. And uh, now somebody from the Gen X generation has given us some attention too. Philip Bump, who's a columnist for The Washington Post, you've probably read him, uh, talks a lot about data. We love him because he uses charts and talks about data. Great. That's in our alleyway here. We love this stuff. But he's written a book uh, called The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of power in America. I, I don't know if I love his last days of the baby boom, but hey, <laughs> I guess I'm getting there. Philip, welcome. Thank you very much. You are not the first person to raise that point for the record, but uh, yes. No, I, I suspect. Excuse and I, I'm, you know. hopefully we won't overdo the okay boomer thing. I think sure, maybe sure. we already have. So um, I, right off the bat, I, I kind of have a, a question about this is uh, the, the baby boom generation, it was, it, I think has been so significant and so covered because it was so large. Yeah, right. uh, and one of the things about the baby boom generation, one of the criticisms is that we are very self-absorbed and sure enough, we have covered ourselves, you know, like crazy. There has been so much about the baby boom generation. Why did you want to write a book about baby boomers um, in a field that's been tilled so so kind of thoroughly
2: But maybe not so thoroughly. Well, one of the things to remember about the baby boom is that as the baby boom aged, it reshaped everything around it. right? And so what that means is that as the baby boom has gotten older since the onset, since 1946, it has forced us to reconcile with a different way in which America is manifesting. And so now we have simply reached the point at which baby boomers are retiring. They began retiring about a decade ago. Uh, You know, they are now baby boomers are almost all age 60 or over. And now we need to reckon with now we have this much larger, older population because the baby boom was so big. And so to some extent, it is simply a function of, yes, the baby boom has received a lot of attention, in part because the baby boom broke everything consistently as it got older and moved through American society. But because now we're at a point where it's breaking new stuff, uh, we need to sort of assess that. But also because now we are seeing for the first time since the baby boom began a real competition between boomers and a younger generation, particularly the millennials and Gen Z, for resources, attention, political uh, uh, power and all these sorts of things. For the first time, the baby boom is having to reconcile with being challenged uh, on its power. And so it seemed like a good moment to sit and look at. What's going to happen over the intermediate, you know, over the immediate term in terms of the baby boomers getting older, but then over the long term, once the baby boom is no longer this dominant force in economics and culture and politics, what does that mean for the United States?
1: So when, we, so when will you all die?
2: Yeah, there's no nice way to say it. But yeah, you know, uh, yes, unfortunately. <laughs> and the share, just to put it in perspective, uh,
0: millennials are now the plurality of the population. They're the biggest share at 22%. Baby boomers are 21.8. We've slipped just behind millennials. And Gen Z is uh, a little
2: over 20%. So the, the fading has begun. But, you know, it's very important to point out. It all depends on how you draw those generational boundaries. The baby boom generation is the only one the census bureau recognized as a real generation, simply by virtue of the number of births that occurred. And so, yeah, it's somewhat subjective. But yes, generally speaking, that's exactly what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we are, we're pollsters, and, uh, for pollsters and, and people who deal with, uh, you know, wanting to quantify everything the concept Mm -hmm. of generation is a really handy tool. Um, But is there really such a thing as these generational commonalities and experiences? Or are we forcing um, a lot of square pegs into round holes and uh, perhaps contributing more to stereotypes than Mm. analysis?
2: I think there are three things happening. The first is, yes, it is very useful for us to talk about cohorts of people as they move through time. Right, It is a lot more useful to say, the baby boom generation than to say people were born from 1946 to 1964 and therefore returning the age, you know, like it's just easier, right? It's easier to call my me gen X. And you know what that means in terms of when I was born thereabouts. Same thing with millennials, same thing with Gen Z. You get a little fuzzy at the edges. I like to compare it to astrology. It's sort of made up, and at the edges, everything gets a little wonky, um, you know, but but the, that's apt. It's also apt from the standpoint that, yes, we tend to attribute to the generation's characteristics that they don't hold universally in the same way that we do with, with horoscopes. It is absolutely the case that there are defining events that occur within the lifetimes of a cohort that that help shape who they are in reaction to things. Right. Uh, You know, the the Great Depression, how that shaped that generation of people in a way that is different than my generation, for example, school shootings, the way that's affecting younger Americans in a way that's different than older Americans. Right. There are these things that happen that overlap with our generational identifiers uh, that are significant and important, uh, but they are not necessarily things that mean we can universally attribute, you know, look, I'm Gen X that we were always the slackers. I feel like I'm not really a slacker, right? Um, you know, but, you know, but I get it. it it's, it, you know, the, the third reason we do this stuff is because it's fun in the same way the horoscopes are fun. It's fun to be like, ah, you boomers, ah, you millennials, yada, yada, yada. It can absolutely be some real tension there, but it's also just sort of fun to use these categories uh, uh, very broadly.
1: So you mentioned that the census identifies uh, boomers as the one generation. The one, generation. What, the what one made true, them, yes. Yeah, What made them? what made them so different?
2: I mean just I mean just demographically there's a massive surge in births right I mean the baby boom is you know it, says, it does what it says on its tin right in 1945 there are about 140 million Americans and over the course of the next 19 years more than 76 or nearly 76 million Babies are born. It's huge. I mean, it's more than 50 percent of the population at the end of World War II is is being born. And that forces all these changes on the United States that I referred to earlier. And so you can point you if you look at a, a a graph of birth in the United States, you can see the baby boom. Anyone, you don't need to be a demographer. Uh, and that makes it distinct and, and identifiable, distinctively identifiable.
3: One of the things I find, and this is all fascinating stuff, but, and you know, so I I grew up, I was in college when you didn't trust anybody over 30. That yeah. was the sort of the generational line. And we always thought that because we were such a big group that we would always dominate the culture. Uh, we would always dominate politics because we were the big, the big hunk of people going through. And now we seem to be getting at a point uh, where we're being pushed, which is a way of you know, talking more politely about we're starting to die. But the politics seems to be lagging. In other words, we have all these presidential candidates who are pushing 80 or sure. even beyond. Like, did the did the greatest right. generation hold on to everything like I feel the boomers are, like Joe Biden, right. Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Pelosi? Seems like we got a lot of, you know, aging boomers who are still calling the shots. Right.
2: Yeah. So there's there's two things I'd pull out from what you said, and, and you're right. I'm, I'm the first is that. The baby boom itself is not politically consistent. You guys are pollsters, you understand this. But the, the the best example I like to use here, it actually gets to your older versus younger boomer framing, which I think has some validity and and reinforces the point that not all boomers are the same. There are three American presidents who are baby boomers who were born within two months of each other. Uh, Donald Trump was born in June 1946. Uh, George W. Bush was born in July. And Bill Clinton was born in August of 1946, right? And if you think about them, they represent both three different aspects of American politics right now. Trump, the hard right, the Republican, uh, Bush, the establishment Republican, and Clinton, uh, the liberal Democrat. They also, when they were elected, reflect changing political values of the baby boom generation to some extent. Baby boom excited about uh, Bill Clinton running in 1992. Uh, they you know, helped elect George W. Bush in 2000 and, of course, uh, Donald Trump in 2016, right? So you see those evolutions over time. It is the case that Congress now is much older than it used to be. To your point about legislators being older, part of that is the power of incumbency. Diane Feinstein has been in has been in the Senate since 1992. Uh, she, uh, you know, Chuck Grassley is almost as old as she is, a couple months younger. He just got reelected last year, right? Uh, it, it, you know, part of one of the ways to think about this is when we talk about the political power of baby boomers, which I think is a real thing, even if they are not, even if they don't share partisan identity. When we talk about the political power of baby boomers, uh, one of the ways in which that's manifested is simply by virtue of the scale. So you have the Senate, it's a group of only 100 people that rewards the power of incumbency. So if you have, a, you know, if if even if people consistently retired at the age of 65, didn't you know that but over time, even if it had been consistently the case that 50% of people retired at the age of 65, because you have so many baby boomers, it just means there's going to be more people sticking around and filling those those jobs, those occupations, right? And so one of the things we see in the Senate is, is it is it is disproportionately the case because incumbency, you're only up for your you know job every six years, that it, that, that it rewards sticking around for a variety of reasons, uh, that it's more it's more sharply uh, noticeable there. But one thing that has happened with the age of Congress over time, uh, particularly in recent years, is it started to trend back down for years. It sort of tracked up the average age of Congress, tracked up with mm-hmm. the age of the baby boom. It started to tick back down recently, which again shows the power of this younger generation. And
3: there's a lot of new, younger, I think, millennial folks who just got sworn in. There's a few. Uh, I wouldn't say a lot,
2: but a few, yeah. Yeah.
0: One of the things that I found interesting about your book is um, you're, um, you know, hope I don't uh, offend you, you're you're kind of a data geek like we are. Maybe you're not, but you kind of seem like you are. Um, I love (laughs) the fact that instead of this (laughs) book, is that okay? Yeah, sure. Instead of... Being a data book, this is a book that puts humanity into the data. And you went and talked to people. You went to the villages and stuff like that. But I love sure. that you found maybe the first baby boomer, a woman right. born on January 1st, 1, 1946. What did you learn about the baby boomers and the, and all of that we have
2: done from going beyond just looking at the numbers and actually talking to people? Yeah, so I, I can't take credit for identifying uh, Kathleen Kirschling as the first baby boomer. I This book is in ways that probably not a lot of people recognize, but it's sort of a follow-up to a 1980 book called Great Expectations by Landon Jones, who was a a well-known journalist at the time. He actually identified Kathleen Kershling as the first baby boomer in that book. As such, it was interesting to go back and talk to her in part because now she's self-aware of that identity and sort of internalized it. And so I got to talk to her after she had been, had these decades of existence as the first baby boomer, which really was instructive because it was a way of talking to a baby boomer about the baby boom, cognizant of the way that the baby boomer has this overwhelming grip on American society. Uh, and so it really helped me understand both The ways in which the baby boom manifests differently, you know, among different people, but also just just reinforced a lot of the, you know, it's easy to fall into the stereotype trap, as we just discussed, but really reinforced the ways in which the baby boom was exceptional that we have this person who is identified as this thing and has been aware of it for several decades and can talk to it and about it in a a meta sense uh, was very, very fitting. It
3: seems like also this is the story. Right. Uh, if there was a flip side to the book, it's a story about American immigration, also, right? And how we accepted people or didn't accept people, almost depending upon whether we needed more people. Uh, right. And I find that kind of interesting because I don't, I, 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 yes. So my grandparents were of the uh, 1905 immigration, right. Right. and that was a certain group. Uh, I don't think necessarily of um, of uh, the period I lived in as a shifting acceptance of immigration or not, but from the book and from thinking about this way it certainly is it's a story about you know how open our doors are and how right. close they are i guess
2: no very much so it, you know one of the things that i didn't realize until i started researching the book was that the baby boom began and existed in a period in which american immigration was at a historic low right there had been a big backlash against particularly southern european and eastern european immigrants in the early 1900s that led to new restrictions on immigration also from asia and things along those lines that didn't end until after the baby boom ended and so the you know the the demographer i spoke with pointed out that the average immigrant in 1946 when the baby boom started was somebody's grandparents you know someone who immigrated from europe to your point Uh, Several decades earlier, then immigration laws opened up in the mid 1960s, and we saw this influx of people from Asia and Central America and Mexico that not only reshaped the American population in terms of scale, but also demographically. And so we see a lot of backlash in this moment politically from this older generation, not only boomers and not all boomers, but within the boomer generation in particular That is a very, very white generation. We see this backlash to the changing face of America, which itself is, of course, you know, we can we can dive into whether or not that's an accurate representation by itself. Uh, But we see some of that backlash and it is because very literally America looks different now than it did then, uh, which is very much uh, a function of immigration.
1: Oh, you do talk a lot about the the changes that have occurred and the right. impact that boomers have had both on our politics and our economy and our culture um right. how is the disruption um in the politics that i think we're seeing right now related to these general gener- generational differences uh, as particularly i think w- what we're seeing is this heightened discussion Um, Of Social Security. And perhaps that's that's not that shouldn't be so surprising, given given the age and the fact that uh, that baby boomers are now moving towards, you know, uh, retirement and fully, you know, in retirement.
2: Yeah, I think there there are three ways, and, and I'll go through these fairly quickly, but three ways in which I think politics is affected. The first is the one I just talked about, these demographic changes that are triggering a lot of people's negative reactions. The second way is sort of an abstract application of politics. If you think about things like housing, well to people are more likely to own houses, they see it as a storehouse of value for their retirement. When there is a proposition on, you know, a local measure to build an apartment building or expand housing, they tend to be against it because they see that as tamping down on their uh, uh, the value of their homes. And therefore, that limits the availability of housing. So that's sort of a because there are a lot of baby boomers who own a lot of houses and are making a lot of those sorts of decisions that has a large political effect on housing availability for younger Americans. And so that's a way in which boomer power manifests, you know, political power manifests in a way that harms younger generations. uh, That isn't necessarily about politics, partisan politics, such as it is. Uh, But yes, you're right. So again, when we talk about the baby boom, we talk about how over the course of the existence of the baby boom, as they have aged, they have broken American systems. And so one of the things that's happening now is Baby boomers, when they were working, poured a ton of money into things like the Social Security Trust Fund. And now that they are retiring, are drawing down that money. And so we see the rapid, the, the very rapid depletion of the trust fund. We see that depletion being affected by the fact that people are living longer than they used to and other factors uh, that perhaps weren't accounted for at the front end. And so now this becomes a very salient political debate because the baby boom is older, because all these people are retiring. What are we going to do in order to protect Social Security for folks? Now, this is a very complicated, nuanced subject, but it's fascinating to watch that the Republican Party, which for years was very much like we got to rethink this. You know, we shouldn't be. We need to. These programs are too big. This is entitlement spending. Now, you know, a third of Republicans are age 65 or over, more than half are over the age of 50. There's not a lot of appetite in the Republican Party anymore to cut these programs that are benefiting them directly. And so now you see the Republican Party. Having the, that, that Biden is very effectively using this as a wedge yes. issue. Republicans want to cut these things. And it used to be Republicans have been like, heck yeah, let's do it. Right. And now they're like, no, 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 don't worry guys, don't worry guys, we're not going to do that. And he really puts them on the defensive simply because of the demographic
3: change in the oh, party. Oh, I think the Joe Biden uh, attack and the persistence on that is fascinating uh, because it, like, as you say, it's got a wedge issue here. And okay. it's Reflects just this changing population and and the composition of the parties. You can't lose the younger vote and lose the older vote and expect to win many elections. So it's, right. it's fascinating. Fascinating.
0: When you think about the social security and and the challenges, um, is there a gen and the changes in the population? So uh, already millennials and Gen X are you know a. Major- if not a majority, uh, very close to a majority of uh, the population, not the voting age population yet, but that's going to happen. Uh, Does that spell some sort of a generational conflict, do you think, over Medicare and Social Security, which are the two giant, you know, entitlement
2: programs that are in financial difficulty and that is largely because of boomers? Yeah, I think that the way in which this manifests is less about younger people having a different approach to that spending than older people do. I, you know, younger people tend to be more liberal. That manifests more in things like climate change and and uh, gun laws and LGBTQ issues than it does in government spending. Uh, but they do tend to be more liberal, and so I, I suspect there's not a big push among younger people to to try and cut those programs. There is, however, a competition for resources that didn't used to exist. Right. Gen X, we, we, I always get feedback from people. You guys didn't talk about Gen X. The reason why is because Gen X isn't very large. And so we never really effectively competed against the baby boom. We just sort of, you know, we sort of picked up their crumbs as, as we trailed along <laughs> beside them, right? <laughs> Sorry uh, about that. Sorry. Yeah, that fine. You know, I've gotten used to it. Uh, but that, that's <laughs> not the case with millennials Gen X it's, or Gen Z. And so what we see now in this moment is we see people who are being asked. There's a limited pool of resources at the government level, you know, federal, state, local. What are we spending that on? And there's a very real need to spend it on seniors because the senior population is ballooning, right? But there's also a very real need to spend it on young people and things like childcare and schools and you know elementary education and pre-K programs. And so we see this competition and we see this group of older voters who are who are overrepresented in the electorate because they vote more heavily and who have a very different set of needs. And you know, you guys are pollsters; you understand this that that older people are less supportive of things like bond measures for schools because they don't use them, right? But you see this 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 competition for resources. I think that's where it manifests. It's not that younger people are against spending on social security. It is instead that they see an increased need for things like increased housing and increased need for pre K programs, et cetera, et cetera. The things that you need when you're younger, and that then actually creates this competition for resources.
1: What are the What are the implications to economically for? baby boomers now really moving out of the economy and and retiring. Yeah. I mean it's it's taken a while. Yes, people are living longer. And when we when we look certainly at our political system, it's been it's been really hard to to move to the to the next generation of representation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's going to, it's occurring and it's going to continue to occur. And so it's going to have implications both for um, social security for other government programs and for the economy as a whole.
2: Yeah, you're right. I mean, and obviously, a lot of it's nebulous and it's hard to predict these sorts of things. And that was when I spoke with economists, many of them mentioned, be careful. So don't make, don't make too many hard and fast predictions here. Um But yeah, there are a few things that we can be pretty confident are going to happen. One is that as baby boomers age, retire and die, eventually, there's going to be a big transfer of wealth. One firm that I spoke with estimates is north of $50 trillion over the course of the next two decades. A lot of that wealth is going to be, you know, so a lot of it's bequeathments, you know, people's inheritances and things like that. But a lot of it is is, uh, payments that are made as well people are alive, either to organizations or to family members paying for kids college, buying them a house, things along those lines. Hmm. Uh, One of the things that we can expect is... Is that the wealth inequality that exists in the United States will continue. Uh, the best example that I got from someone was, you know, Ivanka Trump does not need to wait for a bequeathment in order to be rich, right? <laughs> her father has done a lot of investing in her over the course of her life. That is how this pattern works. And that is how wealth inequality continues over generations. Uh, that I think we can also expect that... We aren't really sure how much of that wealth is going to go to taking care of older Americans. And this is a real question. Right. You know, if people live longer and if they get sick, you know, how how much of their wealth are are they going to be able to pass on to younger generations as opposed to pass on to giant healthcare corporations? Right. Uh, Which I which I think is a real question. Uh, Then there's the question of the workforce change. And one of the things that demographers are particularly concerned about is the relationship between the number of people who need to be cared for because they're older, and the people who are in the working age population, right? And this ratio has just skyrocketed over the course of the past two decades, because baby boomers are starting to retire and reaching age 65. And the question is, are we going to have enough people working to actually pay into the programs that these seniors need? This, again, comes back to immigration. A lot of people advocate for, well, let's expand immigration. We can bring in a workforce that can actually pay those taxes and and help take care of that. Uh, but that is a tension that at this moment is unresolved.
3: Yeah, I, I, I find it interesting in our talking, the diversity within the baby boomers. And uh, before we uh, got on talking to you, uh, the, the three of us, the three boomers, uh, were talking about How we identify, and because I am the eldest, uh, my points are of of identification are the '60s, um, you know, uh, the the assassinations, Great Society, Vietnam War. Uh, For Barb and Jay, that's that's very different.
0: Um, We were in nursery uh, school when that (laughs) happened. (laughs) Although they are.
3: they are older and wiser than their years, I will say. Yeah. Uh, but uh, is this common within the different generations that we have this kind of diversity? And uh, are, are the baby boomers being drawn with too big a circle? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. To, to, okay.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely that. Right. I mean, this goes back to our stereotyping thing, but you, you raised two interesting issues here. The first is that there have been four baby boomer presidents. I mentioned three of them earlier, yeah. Trump, Bush and Clinton. The fourth is not, as people expect, Joe Biden, but instead Barack Obama. Barack Obama was born in the 1960s. <laughs> right. And he's very different than Bill Clinton and those other presidents. Right. There is a gap. You know, we're talking about 19 years. Right. We're the baby yeah. boomers, Some baby boomers had kids who were baby boomers. Right. Like this is not, yeah. you know, these are not hard and fast lines that are drawn here. Um uh, and then I said, I had another point. I forget what it is at the point uh, at the moment. So
0: <laughs> starting to seem like a boomer, forgetting what you were going to say. Yeah. Hey, I'm Gen
2: X. We're getting up there too, man. I get it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right, I just, what were you going to say? Oh, oh no, I, I actually I just, I just, re- I just remembered okay, the other just, thing that you, that you mentioned, yeah, there it is. Uh, my, my memory kicking in. Um, but you mentioned the fact, uh, that there is a diversity in the baby boom generation. One of the things that's really fascinating about baby boom is that. The baby boom continued to grow until the year 2000, even though the birth ended in 1964 because of immigration. And so what happened over time is the baby boom generation actually got more diverse. It got more demographically oh, okay. diverse because okay. you had all these immigrants coming who were baby boomers, even though they were born outside of the United States. So to the point, I always like to raise that because it's sort of counterintuitive. Sorry. Yeah, and, the, yeah. and, the, and, the leg-
1: and after all your research and chatting with all these folks, the legacy – of the baby boom generation.
2: Yeah, I mean, really, the legacy is I, and this answer always sounds like a cop out. But I really think the legacy is that modern America is defined by the baby boom. What America is, is today is largely a function of the baby boom. There are obviously external international factors that come into play. But the United States of America had to adapt to this large population, and it did so. And that means economically, it means culturally, and it means politically. Right. There are all these things that happened as the baby boom was getting older. That was that forced a response that that, you know, the fact that teenagers are seen as a giant target market. Right. There was some of that before the baby boom, but really, you know, grew under the baby boom, became a thing during the baby boom. The ways in which we look at, you know, a lot of the stereotypes and, and expectations we have about American culture are things that are rooted in what happened with the baby boom. And those set the expectations. So really, that's the legacy. What America is today is a function of this giant, you know, these, these tens of millions of people being born in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Yeah. Well, we have only scratched
0: the surface of what you covered in your book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Philip Bump, uh, Washington Post columnist and author. Thank you so much. This has been great. And, and I hope you don't take offense at us boomers, you know, picking the brain of the Gen X person to find out more about <laughs> us. Look, Very here's boomer-ish. the thing.
2: Here's the thing. Polsters always get a pass. Polsters are, are some of the greatest <laughs> people on earth. And so I'm always happy to play along. We love and that. I mean that sincerely. Thanks. I mean, that sincerely. I love no, I and you, you guys do. get a better. So. God bless.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
3: <laughs> well, this is a little bit of a reach in terms of a segue, but let's talk about from generations to an age old debate. How's that? And this is involving chocolate. Uh, and certainly in the post Valentine's Day period, there's a lot of recent history on the question of what do you think about your favorite kind of chocolate uh, and uh, You know, in uh, 2021, uh, YouGov asked the question about which of the following is your favorite kind of chocolate. And the choices were, not surprisingly, milk chocolate, dark chocolate, and white chocolate. This has got to be a question that everybody has an opinion on. And the milk chocolate won out with a plurality at 49%, just short of a majority, dark chocolate at 34%, white chocolate at 11%. Uh, not much difference by uh, men and women on this, uh, but it's certainly indicative of if chocolate was being exchanged on Valentine's Day, you had to know where to go in terms of uh, the different flavors, uh, different types. So step up, kids. Save me here. What kind well, of no, is, is... your favorite?
2: Dark, What's your I'm favorite a dark late?
3: chocolate fan.
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay. There's no comparison.
1: Ah, huh. interesting. Barb? Is white chocolate even chocolate?
0: I, I don't think so, but. Apparently it is. Oh, now okay. you're getting definitional on me.
1: Uh, well, no, because actually white chocolate is my favorite chocolate if you're just going to have, you know, um, plain chocolate. Um, but I always thought that it wasn't really considered a, a chocolate a, at all. And actually, my my favorite chocolate really depends upon what it's in. So, uh, you know, you mean I mean, your
0: favorite kind of chocolate is whatever kind of ice cream you have on hand. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> you knew I was going to bring this back to ice cream. Yes. So. So, yes, I love dark chocolate in, in, uh, in um, you know, mint chip uh, ice cream and chocolate chip ice cream, uh, even even on, um, you know, coconut. So uh, so dark chocolate goes really well. Uh, with. But coconut. also
3: you like high quality chocolate. Uh, yeah you also yeah. like low quality chocolate, which is kind of interesting. You'll eat any chocolate.
1: <laughs> no, Jada no, my low, quali- my low quality my low quality chocolate actually isn't chocolate. It gittles. <laughs> Jake yeah, Tapper.
3: You're not I like you are the I'm, least I'm... Noshy on our panel here. So why don't, uh, why don't you try it? You know, but chocolate. but but
1: obsessed, but obsessed, I did notice you with that uh Godiva uh uh chocolate box that we got uh from one of our uh, gracious friends. For the for the holidays, that uh, you you actually a couple, are a I'm, fan.
0: I ate a couple out of that. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, not a big dessert person, and if I eat dessert, as you know, I it's going to be like more around the berries and that kind of thing. But just chocolate and just dark chocolate, uh, not absolutely to the most bitter, but pretty close. Um, mm-hmm. I love as a little. It's kind of like an aperit, you know, a, not a teeth What you have after dinner, after dinner drink kind of thing. It's kind of like an after dinner drink, but it's chocolate. Um, hmm. My mom... Are we going north, Are we going around the horn here picking up we some can. other... But real real quick, my, so my mom, uh, who died at 94, insisted that her doctor told her she could have six ounces of red wine uh, every day, which we probably did. She lived in 94, so who's going to argue with her? And uh, two pieces of dark chocolate. And she had oh. that every day, I don't know, you know, certainly from her 80s on, uh, early 80s on, that was her uh, end, end of dinner, uh, was uh, two pieces of dark chocolate, so... Heard I've heard about that about
3: Wonderful. dark chocolate and I'd certainly have taken that to heart. <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: But have some some younger folks. You know, we were, you know, we don't want to just hear from uh from these boomers, boomers. in this oh. in this segment. Uh Athan, why don't you uh why don't you chime in? Um, I don't know. I would say definitely dark chocolate. That's all my go to. And then I used to actually work in a chocolate store for a while. Oh. oh, so I like to consider myself of an expert in chocolate.
3: Wow! Wow! So, what are we missing here about people's preferences?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think most people don't go for dark chocolate, but they're missing okay. out. Yeah.
0: So, you worked in a chocolate store. Did you think white chocolate was chocolate?
1: Um, I mean, technically, it doesn't have any cocoa in it, but I still think it is. Yeah, this is so a whole new. It's controversy. just the sugar. It's just the sugar and cream part. Yeah, but
3: I then it's misnamed. I mean, this is a whole new controversy. I hadn't even envisioned. Emily, join, join into this. Uh, and in terms of uh, where, where do you line up on the, the this heated debate over chocolate?
1: Um, I think I agree with Barbara that it kind of depends what it's in or if it's a topping <laughs> or I prefer my chocolate mixed with peanut butter in that sense. But ah. if I had a dense baked chocolate, it would be dark chocolate. Wow. Wow. And Casey? oddly enough i have to go buying percentages because above like the really bitter stuff i can't handle but everything else good with me yeah no, I, I, I think uh, chocolate is just really good to have around okay boomer that'll do it for Pole Hub
2: this week Poll Hub is produced by the Marist Poll at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York.
1: Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. The Poll Hub team includes Athan Hollis and Will Pramazell.
3: If you enjoy Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review. Positive reviews help other listeners like you find
1: us. If you'd like to learn more about polling and survey science, check out the Marist Poll Academy our free online learning portal accessible from our website. If you have questions for us, tweet them directly to at MaristPoll.
0: Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub.
1: And with any luck, it will cooperate.
0: Finally,
2: wherever you listen to Poll Hub,
1: there is a subscribe button.
3: Click it, and the latest episode will be ready for you in your podcasting app as soon as it's released.
1: We'll We'll see see you next time.
2: Okay, Boomer.